So this morning, as you can tell, we do not yet have screens hanging on the walls. So we're going to do this old school, which I think is pretty fun. You're going to have to actually open a Bible if you're going to be with me in the scripture this morning. We'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look primarily at verses 14 and 15. And I'll throw you a bone here. If you're using one of the blue Bibles that's underneath the chair in front of you, the page number that you're looking for is 992. How about that? 992. Hopefully that makes it a little easier for you. We'll jump around a little bit. We're going to go to John 14. We'll look at one other passage this morning. I recommend as we move together that you keep your finger there in 1 Timothy 3. That's going to be our home base. We're going to return to those verses several times this morning. As you make your way there, I want to just let you know what we're here to do. Our objective this morning is to try to answer the question, what is a church for? What is the purpose of a local church? Why does this exist? Why can't Christians be solo Christians? Why don't we just meet Jesus, get saved, and go to heaven right away? Why is there supposed to be this interaction between a group of people who gather in Jesus' name and their community, their neighbors, the systems around them, the people that they're close to? I think that God's word is going to make it plain to us that there is one mission of God's church and that the church is uniquely and individually equipped to fulfill that mission in a way that none of us can do on our own and that no other entity or parachurch ministry or government or anything else, any other organization of people can possibly do. So if you've had time now to get to 1 Timothy chapter 3, draw your attention to verse 14. We'll read verses 14 and 15. The Apostle Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I don't, if I delay, you may know how a person ought to behave within the household of God, within God's house. And then Paul explains what he means by that. He says, which is the church of the living God, which is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. That's the idea today. I'm going to come right out at the beginning and just let you know that's our big concept is that the local church is a pillar and buttress or a more modern word you might think of as support, a pillar or a support of the truth. Now if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, just to give you a little bit of context, the guy writing this letter is not named Timothy. Timothy's the one who gets the letter that we just read from. The person who wrote it and sent it is a man named Paul. Paul grew up in a strict religious system. He was convinced that by doing the right thing, he could win God's favor. He could get on God's good side. He could keep himself on God's team. And God would have no choice but to bless Paul because Paul had been perfectly obedient. Later in Paul's life, he had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ that changed everything. And Paul became the most effective, the most prolific, the most widespread of all of the apostles, the men who were called by God to go and tell other people about Jesus' work and ministry after Jesus' life was over. The Apostle Paul feels inspired to write to a young man named Timothy, a man who Paul has discipled and walked with for several years, to remind him of what it takes in order for a church to be faithful to God. Now, the Apostle Paul knows full well that there's a whole lot of things you can do that the world would call good, that even other religious people would label as right or effective or helpful. Paul's objective is to get down to just a razor-fine point and define what the truth is. Not just what's helpful, not just what's nice, not just what's good, not what will get other Christians to clap for you or say congratulations way to go, but what is the core concept in the middle of this thing that we call church and why do we need it? At the point that the Apostle Paul writes this letter, he himself has been totally radicalized by what he would call the way of Jesus. The word church, the words Christian, those don't come into play for just a few years after the church has already spread across the face of the earth. Initially, people who followed Jesus were called followers of the way. The way, it was a way of life. It wasn't just a set of doctrine to commit themselves to. It wasn't just saying, well, I used to pledge allegiance to Caesar, and now instead I pledge allegiance to Jesus. It was a lived way 
of life. It was understood to be that from the very beginning. This way was built on the teaching of Jesus of Nazareth, so it was handed from Jesus to his 12 disciples and then from them to anybody who was willing to follow, but it was empowered by the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So it's not just the teachings of Jesus that are necessary. You've got to get those into your head or you won't know what to do or how to do it, but the motor, the engine, the power source is not something you and I can just grit our teeth and force ourselves into. We need the supernatural work of Jesus on the cross. We need his life lived, we need his death in our place, and we need his resurrection that seals the other two and makes them effective. Otherwise, the way of Jesus simply becomes a to-do list for you and I. Now here's a surprisingly controversial thought for you right out of the gate, and I say this is controversial because I have seen some other people this week as I've floated this idea to them, uh, not necessarily agree right away, but I think it's what the Bible's saying. If you can look back in your Bible at verse 15 of 1 Timothy 3, It'll help me if you put your eyes on it so that you know that I'm not making anything up here. When the Apostle Paul says the truth in verse 15, he is not talking about a set of ideas. Maybe that doesn't feel controversial to you, but let me tell you what I mean by that. Paul is not talking about an encyclopedia collection of doctrines. He's not saying there's this catalog of concepts of human thoughts that if we could just get all of them together and the church could protect those from becoming corrupted by the world, then we win. Then we all go to heaven together when we die. Paul's not talking about a Wikipedia page that might define you know, what Christians believe. He's not thinking about the Baptist faith and message. He's not thinking about the 1689 London Baptist Confession, the Westminster Larger Catechism, Martin Luther's 99 Theses. He certainly doesn't have the Hail Mary in mind, the Nicene Creed, or even the Apostles' Creed. When Paul says the truth in verse 15, he means what Jesus meant in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. You heard Josh read it. I'll read it to you again. Listen closely. Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't allow yourselves to freely become upset by what's coming. Instead, believe in God and believe also in me, Jesus says. Jesus says, in his father's house there are many rooms. And if that wasn't the case, then Jesus would not have said to his disciples that he was going to prepare a place for them. Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, then I will come again and I will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also and you know the way to where I am going. Now, Thomas is great here. Thomas breaks in kind of at the wrong time in the middle of Jesus' very nice sermon and says, Jesus, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Where's the map? We don't get it. And then Jesus says to him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said to his disciples, I am the truth. It's me. It's my life, it's my way of life, it's my method, it's my attitudes, it's my tone, it's my posture, the way that I speak, the way that I act, the way that I heal, my compassion, my empathy, my love. In other words, Jesus is saying, my way is the true way. My life is the true life. My truth is the true truth. Jesus claimed to have a monopoly not on doctrines, not on creeds, not on confessions. He claimed to have a monopoly on the method, what he calls the way, on the mindset, what he calls the truth, and on the substance, what he calls the life of life. It is that truth, it is the mindset of life with God that the Apostle Paul says that the local church exists to serve. That's the truth that he's talking about. That's why if you read the first 13 verses of 1 Timothy 3, Paul lays out the way of life for elders, and then he lays out the way of life for deacons within the church. And never once does he mention any specific doctrine that those guys have to hold to. And that's not because it doesn't matter. Okay, I'm not saying doctrine doesn't matter. What I am saying is doctrine is not the most important part of following Jesus for you and I. It is not the most important part of how a deacon serves the church. It's not the most important part of how an elder leads the church. The truth 
is not a set of ideas. The truth is the psyche, the perspective, the mindset, the worldview that is necessary to follow Jesus. Maybe you don't know this. Maybe you've been having this sort of acid and water experience when it comes to Christianity. You bounce around the edges of the church, you're here at Christmas, you're here at Easter, your grandmother or your dad made you come today because this new church got new lights and he wants you to come see it. That's good, I'm glad you're here, I don't think it's a waste of your time. But some of us have tried to embrace the way of Jesus without ever looking inside of ourselves to ask, do we even want to do it? Would we like the lifestyle of Jesus? Can we agree with Jesus that his way actually leads into life or does it feel excruciating to us every single time that we try to exercise self-control? and patience, and love. You and I have to try, if we can, to understand that it takes the truths of Jesus imprinted on our hearts, onto our minds, before the lives that we live can become like Jesus' life. We have to have a mind shift change. In Mark chapter one, Jesus' first words when he broke onto the scene in ministry were that we need to repent and believe. Some of us have tried to believe and then repent. Maybe, maybe, maybe I can, I can fit into this church world. I can convince other people that I'm good enough. Maybe I can even convince God that I've done what I need to do for him to consider me one of his children. And then my life will be changed. Then I can look around and go, uh, I think I'm deep enough in it that I'm willing to start thinking about change. The word that Jesus uses, the word repent, means change the way you think. Change your mind. Open your mind to a different set of realities. Try to understand that the rule of the way that God set the universe up is totally different from the way that things have been going for a very long time on the earth. We understand modern power dynamics. We understand how people climb the ladder at work. We understand all the definitions of worldly success. If we're not careful, we will bring those with us to the way of Jesus, and we will totally destroy any chance that we have of actually walking in humble submission to God, and instead, we will repaint. We will repaint. We will repaint. We will try to refashion all of the standards that the world has for success and call that Christianity, and that is not the way of Jesus. If you still aren't convinced that what Paul is talking about when he says the truth is Jesus Christ himself, look at verse 16 in your Bible. Hopefully you're still open there. Paul says, great indeed we confess. So there he does kind of hint at a confession, which I think is funny. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness, and then there's a colon. So here's what Paul means when he says, this is the mystery of godliness, and this is a little bit hard to understand. I'm going to try to let you know what's going on. Just go with me. He says, Jesus was manifested in the flesh, He was vindicated or justified by the Spirit. He was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. What that tells me is it's all about Jesus. What the Apostle Paul is communicating is this is the truth, this mystery of godliness, this the way that God thinks, the way that he is, the way that his character works itself out in our lives, this is the truth. This is the thing that if your life could ever come into real, meaningful contact with, you would be fundamentally changed. And Paul gives all kinds of evidences of people that saw Jesus, the things that he did, how he proved himself to be who he says he is. This is why at True North, if you've been around very long, you have heard us say regularly that it is all about Jesus. It has to be. A church can make itself about any number of things that are not Jesus, and slowly and over time it will die because it will have cut itself off from the true vine. The vine is Jesus himself. We as the branches have to stay plugged into him and him alone. This is the truth that the church exists to both uphold and defend. It is not what we believe about this or that doctrine, which maybe we could say who can be an elder, or we might fight about whether dogs can go to heaven, or 
Uh, if you're a Presbyterian and I'm a Baptist, maybe you think we should be doing wine and I think we should be doing juice, right? We get stuck in the weeds, don't we, about things like that? But that's not the defining factor. The Apostle Paul isn't saying that God created the church to work those kinds of things out for the sake of the world. He is saying the truth that we exist to uphold and defend is that Jesus is who he said he was. And that if we will follow him, our lives will be the only testimony anybody ever needs to see to know that somewhere out there there is a God who can fundamentally transform human life. At True North Church, we believe that that truth, that it's all about Jesus, is so important, so significant, so necessary that we make each other a set of commitments that center or revolve around the life of Jesus. We call that set of commitments a covenant, and it is that covenant that binds us to one another. So when we talk about covenant membership, you heard me say earlier today, we're having a covenant member meeting. Membership here is not just about, I raise my hand, Jesus is my savior, and I'm gonna do my best. There is an additional layer of communicating to one another that we're gonna do this together that we're going to be a team. Again, if you were to go back to Mark chapter 1, not for one single day did Jesus ever have an individual disciple. From the very first time that he called any disciples at all, there were at least two of them. And from that day forward, we have done this together. And where we have failed to do it together, we have failed. We need one another. God has put us into a body. All of the figurative language in the entire New Testament about what it means to be plugged into the church uses figurative language that deals with corporate entities, being part of a body, uh, being a bride of Christ, but, but the words that are used around that are plural, that we get plugged into each other after we get plugged into Jesus. So when we think about the core tenets of the covenant, we believe that those, those concepts orbit around the way of Jesus and are essentially just various manifestations of love. As we live out our covenant to each other, all we're doing is doing Christian things, things that ought to be normal, things that ought to be regular, but unfortunately, we're all very busy and very distracted, and so we find it helpful to put pen to paper and remind ourselves of what we're committed to do. Our six objectives start and end with Jesus. I've said this to you three times before, and I'm going to keep saying it today because I want it to be the clearest thing that I say out of everything else that I say. Everything we do is about Jesus and Jesus alone. So this is why we do not have patriotic church services. It's why we don't program big events on Father's Day or Mother's Day. It's why we don't host world-renowned speakers or political rallies within the church. We believe that the church exists as a pillar and buttress of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we will champion him and we will champion him alone. With Jesus at the center, we believe that we can rightly relate to one another. And so we use at True North three alliterated words to think about how we do that together. We believe first that we belong to Jesus. We belong to Jesus and we belong to each other in community. We behold Jesus high and lifted up. We worship him, but not just in this room for 30 minutes a week. We worship him by being in his word. We worship him by acknowledging him where he's already at work. We do our best to quote Brother Lawrence of the resurrection to practice the presence of God wherever we are. That's beholding. And then we believe that we become like Jesus, not just in deed. We don't just push ourselves as hard as we can to do more good stuff, but in thought as well, that that truth imprints on us so that we are fundamentally changed to be like him. Belonging, beholding, and becoming happen typically across the table from other followers of Jesus. These are primarily inward-facing principles, and they guide any ministry that we might build at this church that is designed for other believers. Now, when we are in right relationship, first to Jesus and then to one another, we believe that we take Jesus everywhere with us. And we do this with three alliterated concepts as well. We believe that we are called to share the gospel explicitly with words we believe that we must show our neighbor's mercy. This is the example of Jesus for us. And we believe that we shape our community with hope, 
Not with fear, not with doomsday prophecies, not with all the horrible things that could happen if we don't make all the correct political steps. We bring hope into that arena. That is our calling, that there is something higher and better and more worth our time and attention than who is or isn't in office or what elementary school gets overhauled or what doesn't and what all the different domestic issues that circle around us in our community. We walk into those places intentionally believing that if we bring the hope of Jesus with us, that there will be change as a result. Sharing, showing, and shaping happen across the table from people who may not be following Jesus yet. These are more so outward-facing principles that guide any ministry that we might build for people who do not believe. Now, if you can, think back to Paul's letter to Timothy, what we've looked at a couple of times already this morning. Paul was concerned that Timothy would appoint elders and deacons. That's the point of the book. He was concerned that Timothy would appoint elders and deacons who might not understand that it's all about Jesus. This is his big worry. If Paul himself can come and he himself can lead the church and plant new churches and raise up new deacons and new elders, he feels confident that he can make sure everybody knows that it has to be all about Jesus. But his concern is that young Timothy may not be ready yet. And so he pushes Timothy and says to him, his objective in writing to Timothy was that Timothy could teach churches how to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth of Jesus, how to serve the gospel of Jesus. So what this means is Paul's concept here is bigger than just our Bible study topics. It's bigger than the What We Believe page on our website. It's even bigger than the preaching that you may love or hate that happens at this church. It is the lifestyle lived by people who claim Jesus as their rabbi. That lifestyle will be the proof of whether or not we understand and have embraced Jesus. Jesus said it this way. He said, they'll know that you belong to me because you'll love one another in a way that they've never seen before. How we behave, how we speak to one another, the things that we love, the causes that we champion, how we treat strangers, these are the ways that we uphold the way of Jesus. So here's the question for you. If you're here today and you are convinced that Jesus is who he says he is, maybe you're already a person who's covenanted in this local church, the question for you is, if we are not the kind of church where people can go to find the life of Jesus and be connected to God, where else do we expect people to find that? The question underneath that question is, if we become too concerned with any other part of this church, whether it be the building or the programs or the budget or whatever thing it is that, that if we're honest, we would like to let go of, but we can't seem to unfixate on. If we don't bring those things to the Lord and surrender them, we become unable to help people find the Jesus that they're looking for. And if they can't find him here, where will they find him? Where do we expect the eternal life of God to make contact with human beings if not here? The point of having the truth that Paul says is ours to defend and uphold is not to win a war or prove a point. The point of truth is to be made free. That's what Jesus said. Freedom happens when people who are not sure about Jesus are welcomed in, even while they're not sure. When people who don't know if they're convinced that Jesus is who he says he is or if churches are safe places, that they're allowed to stay close to the life of a local church while they make their minds up, while they decide if they are willing to repent and believe. The kind of life-altering change of mind that Jesus has in his mind when he says repent in Mark 1, that kind of life-altering change takes time. It takes questions, it takes prodding, it takes doubt and worry, and then all at once that truth breaks through and people give their whole self, past, present, and future, to Jesus. That's the work that he does. So maybe now you're beginning to see why Paul seems so serious about the church defending and upholding the truth of Jesus. Through that truth is the only way any of us can make contact with the life of God. The local church is the only place a person can find the life that they are looking for. And that's our mission, 
to uphold the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the only method, the only mindset, the only substance that can transform people. It's all about Jesus at True North Church and our covenant to one another is designed to keep our eyes on him at any cost. And this is why we renew our covenant. This is why once a year, as part of our annual cycle, we decide together whether we are still in or whether maybe something has changed for us. Now, obviously, our covenant with God doesn't need a renewal. That's not what I'm trying to say to you. But the covenant promises between us, one to another, a lot can happen in 12 months, and we feel that it's appropriate and fitting for us to reevaluate once a year, am I still committed to these things? Or have my eyes drifted other places? Has my speed of life, the pace at which I live, the busyness and craziness of my children or my spouse or my work, has it drug me away from the things that a year ago I felt were important enough that I would promise to try to do? It seems like at least once a year we ought to take a hard look at how that's going and decide if we're in or out. We reconnect to the corporate movement of the church when we renew. We dust off all the aspirational goals that the membership covenant put in front of us a year ago and we decide whether or not we <clears throat> excuse me, are all in. We do this, we covenant, and we renew our covenant because naturally as human beings, we're drifting away from each other. Nobody accidentally drifts into community. You know that, right? Nobody just wakes up one morning and has a best friend. I think sometimes parents think that's gonna happen when they have more kids. No, no, we don't just naturally love the people that we're in proximity to, right? It takes work. It takes a commitment. It takes a building of trust. These are the kinds of things that convince me that we need a covenant. We need a promise that we can give and receive from one another. Now, if you're a little wary of that, I've encountered plenty of people in the six or so years that I've been a pastor who are nervous to put their name on a line. They don't want to be put on some kind of list. They don't want to be put in a compromising position where is an elder going to show up at their house in the middle of night and condemn them because somebody saw them out in public doing something that looked like maybe it wasn't exactly what they should be doing. No. The point of the covenant is not power. The point of the covenant is not even a definition of authority. It's a commitment to one another that opens up this beautiful, freeing relationship where together we can explore what it means to follow Jesus. Now, churches who don't do this, and I'm not here to pick on any one church specifically, but churches that don't do this, that don't have a sense of membership, that don't have any sense of in or out, moving forward together or not, they don't do well. It's typically the beginning of the end for a church like that, when they lose sight of who they are and what they're all about. And I would present to you as evidence, I've said this to you before, just drive the park strip today. If you go have lunch downtown, just drive and look at any of the church buildings that are on the park strip. A lot of them have nobody meeting inside of them anymore at all. Some of them are being rented out by other smaller congregations or church plants or even social groups, quilting clubs, bingo groups, things like that. Those churches I know because I know many of their pastors, they have all shrunk, they've lost track of their members. It doesn't matter what denomination you pick. They have suffered by having uninformed members show up who nobody has seen in 15 years because they heard there was a controversial vote happening in a business meeting. These are the kinds of things that we do to one another when we do not regularly remind ourselves that we are in this together and that it's less about duty and more about love for us, love for one another, the love of Jesus that we share. The covenanted believers at True North have a set of expectations for each other in addition to being saved by Jesus, expectations which function as the bare minimum of active participation in the life of the church. So you can think of these four pieces as the prerequisites. I told you about one earlier today, coming to a starting point. We just want you to know what you're getting yourself into. That seems fair. Uh, but number two would be, we believe that you need to have taken the public step of revealing your faith in Jesus by being baptized in water. Functionally, at True North, we practice baptism by immersion as the best picture of death and burial and resurrection, 
but doctrinally we consider New Testament baptism to, by any definition to happen after you're saved. That's the most important piece, that you're showing a thing that God has already done inside of you. Number three, we want you to be actively engaged in a life group at True North. And this one can be a sticking point for some whose perspective may be that we're adding a barrier to participating in the life of the church by requiring covenant members to be in covenant community. But to attempt to find one's primary community with a group outside of the covenant members of True North necessarily removes the fullest and most robust sense of participation in the life of this local church from those who do so. Andy Crouch is an author who deals a lot with the role that technology plays in our lives. He wrote this about modern community and relationships in his book, The Life We're Looking For. He said, the defining emotional challenge of our time, he wrote it this year, so he's talking about you and me, is anxiety. It is the fear of what might be instead of the courageous pursuit of what could be. Once, we lived with allness of heart, is the way he words it with a boldness of quest that was too in love with the good to call off the pursuit when we encountered risk. But now we love as voyeurs. We pursue shadowy vestiges of what we desire, and catch this church, from behind the one-way mirror of a screen, invulnerable but alone. That's the status quo for relationship outside the church. Don't you think that there's something deeper and richer and more robust and more profound and more transformative for you than that? That can't be what Jesus has in mind, invulnerable but alone, when he calls his disciples to drop their nets and follow him. We participate in community so that instead of being invulnerable and alone, we might actually become vulnerable, a word that scares some of us, but we might do that together in the safety of relationships where we know one another as close to fully as possible and we are known by one another as close to fully as possible. Finally, expectation four is that you give of yourself and that you give of your life. This can be money, but it doesn't have to be. It can be prayer, it can be energy, attention, time, patience. It can be you getting outside of your comfort zone in Jesus' name, letting go of your inhibitions and your fears. It could be simply speaking up about your testimony and giving witness to what God has done in your life, your gifts, even your calling. All of these and more are what we want from you. Not because we want to use you, we believe that God wants to use you. And we don't want to miss out on that. We don't want any part of the body to suffer because we didn't give that body part a clear expectation that we need to know each other and be fully integrated as much as possible. We believe that out of the collective resources that we offer to God together, he builds his kingdom. Now these four prerequisites to covenant membership are not the boundaries that the elders have contrived. We didn't come up with these in a secret meeting that you weren't invited to. They are our members' expectations for one another. They are your expectations of each other if you are a covenant member here. And so we mutually submit to one another out of our reverence for Jesus as Paul commands the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 5. Finally, church, the local church has two offices, two formal offices for people to hold. They are elders and deacons. And these two offices emerge from the established, defined membership of the local church. Those of us who have covenanted together into the assembly of Jesus' body are charged with the task of identifying and then appointing deacons in order to serve the members of the body and identifying and appointing elders to oversee and lead the body. In short, deacons function as deputies of the elders. They're commissioned with projects and tasks that reinforce the structural integrity of the church. Things like feeding the hungry among us, caring for those who are isolated by age or disease, those who may find themselves at a loss because they've experienced the death of a spouse. Deacons are tasked with creatively addressing the emergent physical needs of a church like ours that is growing rapidly. 
Deacons are many things, but they can never be less than members in good standing, tested and approved by the local church body that they are a part of. And then elders are sort of the other side of that coin. Elders' work can be summarized as setting the doctrinal boundaries of the local church, and they do this by teaching and preaching, by counseling and sometimes confronting, and ultimately by equipping the saints of God to do the work of reconciliation in the world, to go the way of Jesus. Elders, like deacons, exist to serve and protect the membership of the local church. They are never less than covenant members, and they participate as such in any setting that requires a congregational vote. So to land the plane this morning, you get to participate in part of this today. You didn't know that when you woke up this morning that somebody was going to ask you to be part of ordaining some new deacons, but that's what we're going to do next. So if you are able, you can move in your Bible to Acts chapter 6. This is the last place we're going to read. Um, I'll come back to 1 Timothy 3 in just a second, but I think it would be beneficial for you to see this story yourselves. As you head that way, I want to invite Mitch Koch, Ben Schmidt, Shane Hunter, and Travis Keeler to please stand up, come to the front, and sit in these four seats. We are going to end our time in the Word today with an exercise in local church life. You got a little lecture, now you get your laboratory credits as well, okay? You can go home and tell people, I've never been to a church where they made me do stuff the first time I went there. In August, we voted together to appoint these four deacons. These men were vetted by our elders. They went through an extensive interview process. Uh, I would say exhaustive. They would probably say exhausting. Uh, But they were willing to submit themselves. They were interviewed by both a mixture of active deacons and active elders. We had a Q&A session at one of our Church in the Park weeks, and then we ultimately voted on them at a business meeting after one of our services over at at downtown at First Baptist Building. And so today is not about whether we think they should or should not be deacons. We made that choice already. Today is about charging these men and charging you. Because if they're the only ones in the room with right expectations, this isn't going to work. You have to know what to expect from them, and they have to know what you expect from them. And so that's what we're here to do. Today we will charge them together to do their work with the confidence that we need them, that we love them, and that we will do our best to support them. So Acts chapter 6, this is the very first church in the entire world. There's never been a church called church that exists simply to know and glorify Jesus and walk his way out in the world. This church is in Jerusalem, and of course, conflict broke out. We don't know how long it's been. It's probably been a couple of months, but people are starting to be very aggressively upset with each other. They're not getting along. They don't agree. Some people felt overlooked and thought that other people were being treated with special favor. None of us have ever felt that way at church, have we? And then a group of Greek-speaking Jewish Christians were deeply offended by the Aramaic-speaking Jewish Christians, probably felt like they were talking behind each other's backs in languages that not everybody in the room knew. The Greek Jews felt like their widows were being ignored at group mealtimes, and they felt that the Hebrew Jews were playing favorites to their own widows. So part of the issue was language. Part of the issue was culture. Some of it was class, and a fair bit of it was political. So in other words, churches have always been the same. So the apostles came up with a solution. They decided, we're going to delegate. We're going to find a way by the Spirit of God. We believe what Jesus told us, that after he went away, he would send another of the same kind, and that this Spirit of God will give us what we need to solve this problem. This does not catch God off guard at all. Look at verse 2 of Acts chapter 6. The twelve who are the apostles summoned together the full number of disciples, which at this stage of the game is several thousand people. And they said, it is not right that we, the apostles, should give up preaching the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brothers and sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. We don't know where they got the number seven, but that seemed to be enough for them. People who are full of the spirit and full of wisdom, who then we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Verse five. 
what the apostles said pleased this first church. And they chose Stephen, a man of faith, a man full of the Holy Spirit. They chose Philip. They chose Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus, who was himself a proselyte come from Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God, as a result of the service of these people, though none of these seven were teaching the word of God, yet the word of God went forth. It continued to increase, and the number of disciples in the city multiplied greatly. And a great many, even of the priests, became obedient to the faith. And that's just in there to tell you that this gospel was so effective that the least likely people to ever confess Jesus were coming to him in droves. It was just that good. They just had to get connected to God through Jesus. They had to. This is the birth point of the office of deacon. God gave his church both shepherds and servants. Neither is very glamorous, but both are the spitting image of the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, who was himself a shepherd and a servant. And it worked well, and it works well today. Now I'm going to read to you from 1 Timothy 3, a few verses before where we were this morning. I want you to just hear this. These are the qualifications from Paul to Timothy. When you identify deacons, hold them to this standard. Paul says this. Deacons must be dignified. They must not be insincere. Your Bible may say double-tongued or prone to talk out of one side of their mouth and then the other when they're with a different group of people. They must not be prone to drink much wine, so they have to have self-control. They must not be greedy for money, but they must hold to the mystery of the faith. What's the mystery of godliness? Paul told us that Jesus is who he says he is. Angels saw him. He healed many. He ascended into heaven. He's good. He's right. His way of life will transform you. They ha- we, we need our deacons to hold to that mystery with a clear conscience to have simple and clear-eyed faith that that is the truth. These must also first be tested. We feel that we've done that on your behalf and given you the opportunity to do that as well. Then have them serve as deacons if they are above reproach. And we believe wholeheartedly that these four are above reproach. Women must likewise be dignified. They must not be malicious gossips, but must be temperate and faithful in all things. Deacons must be the husband of one wife. They must be good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the Bible's standard for a deacon, the character of a deacon, a servant who is in office in the local church. And this is the standard that we have seen in these deacons, and it is the same standard that you affirmed when they were appointed in August. Your deacons will do the following. They will protect and promote the unity of the church by fighting for unity among us when that unity is threatened or when it's called into question. In this way, deacons are like the shocks of the church, absorbing the holes and the hills in the road that we follow Jesus along. This comes through to us in the form of a spirit of gentleness, a spirit of flexibility, the ability to stand on conviction without being combative. And today you have an opportunity as members of True North to participate in the future ministry of these four men and this local church. So I'm about done. I want to invite Audrey Preston and Crystal Leonard, wherever you guys are, if you'll come up here. These are two of our deacons. They're going to pray over these men, lead us this morning. Um, As they come, deacons, I want you to hear this charge. This is your charge for the office that you hold. The ultimate model for the deacons of True North Church is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, our rabbi, Jesus, the true vine, Jesus, the suffering servant of all. In Philippians chapter 2, we are reminded that Jesus humbled himself to the dirt in order to love and reach dirty people. Deacons, we commission you now by Jesus' example and in Jesus' name to continue to do Jesus' work among us, dirty people. 
Jesus who left heaven when he could have chosen to stay and who stayed on the cross when he could have chosen to leave. Deacons, as you serve the body of Christ, may you always be found touching unclean hands and washing filthy feet, serving ungrateful sinners and giving away your life for the ones who love and who you love.